everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by David Moore. Hello, David. Hello, Kevin. How's it going? Going well. Yourself? Well, you know, it's just just peachy. Peachy, I'd say. And then we also have our old pal, Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Hello, Kevin. Hello, David. Hello, Evan. So uh, Evan's recovered. He had a kind of a, a bad week last week, uh, but he seems to have everything straightened out now. He's ready to get back into the uh, fray with the rest of us. We're glad to have you back, Evan. New York food. That's what I'm blaming it on, Kevin. New York food. <laughs> um, have you fully recovered? Do you have all your electrolytes back? I, I think I, I think I have. I've got to go. I've got to actually get out of here from this recording to go get another lab done to monitor some more electrolyte pro, uh, progress. Just in case uh, anybody was wondering. Oh, that's all right. That's enough about electrolytes. We don't want to. We don't want to get into any more of that. That's for Kids, sure. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. There's there is a watchword of the day. Drink your water. That's right. That is from Sports Day Insider. (laughs) Hydration. It's so important. Um, All right. So we kind of had a a big weekend. Uh, That was uh, pretty exciting to see all that stuff happen uh, with the Stars and the Mavericks and both playing uh, seventh games on Sunday. A doubleheader. Uh, more or less there. So that was a lot of fun. First, though, we want to talk about the Mavericks because they're the ones that are moving on. Let's talk about the losers later. Let's let's go with the winners here, the Mavericks. Uh, they they won that seventh game in Phoenix. Uh, I don't want to take credit for it. Uh, I did uh, predict that they would win <laughs> games. Whenever seven. you preface a statement by saying, I don't want to take credit for it, I think but, we know what's about to follow. But please, go ahead. Oh, uh, absolutely. Well, I, I said I, I, I did not predict them to win the seven-game series. I predicted them to lose a seven-game series <laughs> before the season, before the uh, uh, series started. But when, the, when we were asked for our game seven predictions, I said, the Mavericks will win. I, I really, at that point, it's always good to hedge your bets that way. Yeah, well, so you're covered either way. Yeah, either way, you could have begun this you know, kids, segment by little, saying, "Well, you know," and that's how I phrased it. Would lose this sure. seven game series. Never mind that I also wrote that they would win uh, game seven. I do think, though, that, that that was the thing about this team that people, you know, I was I was shocked that the, the reaction nationally uh, going into Game Six and in Game Seven both was that, well, you know, the Suns are going to win this now. It, it was very dismissive, and, and people kept saying, oh, Chris Paul will, retu- will bounce back here, and and these things are happening. And, and, and you're not watching a- as the series progressed. You know, of course, the Mavericks dropped the first two, and then they won four of the next five. Uh, and in those four games, they were dominant, you know, uh, in, those, uh, in all four wins. They won by an average of, like, almost 19 points, I believe. So uh, – it was a little dismissive of the Mavericks and what they were doing uh, and the feeling that the Suns, who had won 64 games and were the, as Jason Kidd constantly said, the best team in the NBA, um, that they would bounce back. Uh, but I, I think that maybe the, the Mavericks have now grabbed everybody's attention a little bit, although maybe not as much as they should still. I, I see where uh, <clears throat> Bet MGM has the series most likely to end in five games with the uh, with the Warriors winning it, um, and, and the Warriors are still the overwhelming favorite, even though the Mavericks took three out of four against the Warriors this year, and of course they were missing at various times either uh, Draymond Green or Clay Thompson or both, uh, and that's a that's pretty hard to lose 
two players of that caliber. But I still say that the uh, the Mavericks are probably not getting their due at this point, which I think they probably like. So before we get well, into- you, well, you can you can say that in that past series, but Dallas had lost, had not won in Phoenix since 2019, and the last two games played in Phoenix before Game Seven, they lost by a total of 50 points. So no, no, no question. I, I think there, I think there was a legitimate reason to believe that the Cal, that the Mavericks were not favored going into that final game, and, and that was that. That is one of the most stunning DFW moments for a sports team that was totally, in my mind, unexpected in a long, long time. Uh, and and you talk about the Mavericks not getting their due. I think some of that's because Phoenix was just so non-competitive in a game of that level that it, it kind of undercut uh, what the Mavericks did a little bit and, and didn't give them enough credit for what they did and how they shifted the momentum of the series because it was such a colossal uh, flop by the Suns. Well, I think there was a couple of things working here on that. And, and, and that conversation was going on between me and Brad Townsend as we're sitting next to each other uh, at the game and discussing what we're going to write and, yeah. and what we're going to, uh, how we're going to chase this thing. And, and Brad brought up the point. He says, I just don't know how much of this is just the, you know, the sun's just stink. And I, and I, and certainly that's a possibility, but I think also, uh, in, and I tried to get players and coach and kid to, to talk about these things. And of course they wouldn't touch it with a 10 foot pole, but you know, when you play great defense against somebody, there's, there's two components in it. Uh, one is the physical, uh, and what you're able to do to this team and how do you stop this guy and how do you keep this guy out of the lane? And, but the, the second part of it is mental. Uh, and after you, have a cumulative effect here. And that's certainly what kid talked about early in the series about guarding Chris Paul is it's not one game. You know, we're going to do this to him every game. He's 37 years old and they didn't say this, but you know, he's 37 years old. We're trying to wear this guy down and you wear him down physically and you wear him down mentally. And I think that's what happened in this game. You watch that game and you watch Devin Booker and clearly they're just flummoxed by this. What's going on. It's like, it's just nonstop. They're picking us up you know, at the airport and we're, and they're just continuing to apply this pressure. And when I come, I, I come, I get away from my man. And then there's another guy right there in my face. I'm getting trapped. Uh, I just thought that uh, it's easy to say, well, they just didn't play well. Well, I think the Mavericks kind of forced that issue. I think both physically and mentally. So I think those, I think there's certainly the possibility that, that Phoenix did do that, but let's look at both series, right? Let's look at the jazz and how did the jazz play? Uh, they, they, they look terrible as well. Uh, you know, there, there was a, there was a feeling Donovan Mitchell did not play well that entire series against the Mavericks. Well, did Donovan Mitchell just have a bad game too, or bad series did. So is that Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell, Chris Paul, are just, you know, coincidentally having bad series or the Mavericks forcing this issue, uh, with what they're able to do. So I think we'll, we'll see here in this series with uh, golden state, it presents an entirely different, uh, dynamic for them. Uh, both of the Jazz and the Suns are mid-range shooting teams. They, that's what they look for. It's a little easier to get some help defense when you're guarding a guy one-on-one and he goes around a screen if there's another guy there to pick him up. And the Mavericks play very good team defense. Uh, and we know that. So it's a little different with the with the Warriors. They're five out. They're much like the, the Mavs are in their offensive approach. They want to shoot three-pointers. It's harder to 
get out and defend guys on the perimeter, or at least to get help on the perimeter to do that. So it will be interesting to see how they uh, target people, who who guards whom, uh, and, and, uh, and as the series develops, if that changes. These are all going to be factors. But we're going to have Evan moderate, a de- uh, maybe not a debate, but a discussion between David and I about how this is going to go. And so, uh, Evan, you take it from here. Well, you've turned off your mic, Evan. Thank you for that long introduction, Kevin. Um, well, I, I guess it needed to be longer because you turned off your mic. Well, the guys were mowing the front lawn here, and I was afraid the dogs were going to bark. So, Oh, you have guys mow your front lawn. Okay. How about that? Yeah, or postage stamp lawn. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I was going to say I'd referee this because, you know, I like to talk, talk, get that basketball vernacular in there. Okay, go ahead. Um, but this will be kind of our game seven slash Western Conference Finals special edition roundtable. Are you guys ready? Yeah, sure. Here we go. Are you, you going to put us on a time limit? Are you going to like? Yeah, I'll either call bring up te- some music to play us I'll, off if we go on too long. I'll call a technical, or the wizard, or the or the whistle will blow one way or another when I'm done. Yeah. Get your whistle out. I like that. All right, so they, they, you guys kind of you, you kind of hit on this first of all, but. Let's very quickly get to this. What does this Phoenix win say, first of all, about Luca? Because I think that everything comes down to Luca, Luca, Luca. So, what does the Phoenix series win say about Luca? David, you go first. Well, not just taking the Mavericks unexpectedly to the Western Conference Finals before anyone really envisioned it would happen which is what good young teams do, right? They break through earlier than you anticipate they would. And you're seeing that with this team, and that's on him. But it's not just how he played, but his demeanor in going into that game seven. And, you know, it started before where he's jumping on. Uh, he's he's not really big on interviews, right? He was happy to go on TNT before the game and talk. And this fits into his whole, uh, I just want to have fun. I'm going to be in your face. Uh, the pressure doesn't bother me, crank it up, you'll see what you're going to get. And that came through before Game 7 even started. Then he gets off to the hot start. You know, what, every, what is everyone saying? Well, you can't be too involved and take others out. Well, you can't be too involved if you're hitting and setting the tone right away and then distributing, and that's what he did. It wasn't, let's get a feel for the game. It was, I'm establishing who we are in this game, and now we'll get everything else to work. And it was just a guy recognizing the moment and responding to what he is temperamentally. So, Kevin, what does it, is, is that it? Is it recognition of the moment, or is there something else that, from your view? Well, I, first of all, I want to say that, you know, we, we talk about, we always want to say, oh, well, now the guy, this is his coming out party. This is who he is now. And, and, and maybe you need that for a national audience. I don't know. Maybe they have to know that at some point. Uh, we've always known that Luca is not afraid of the moment. And, you know, I, I wanted to ask Luca that after, after one of the games uh, or after the game out there in Phoenix and, and uh, you know, it's, it's hard to get Luca to answer questions. You know, he, he doesn't, he doesn't like to, you know, he always just says the same thing over and over and over again, but it is amazing. And I, I attributed it, I guess, to the fact that, he, you know, he's playing with men at 14. Right. Uh, and so, and CJ McCollum had a great tweet during that game. He said, you know, this is the guy who's playing in European championships where they got armed guards up in the back rows here to make sure that people are not going to, you know, start pr- trouble 
during these games, you know, on the road. And, and he's he's winning those games on the road as a teenager. So I, I think that's one of the things. Uh, frankly, it's one of the reasons why I thought that Luca was a great pick and uh, when the, the – or not, they made the trade and got Luca was that – you know these other guys that you know that you're getting uh, here from from the American group are all guys you're just playing against other teenagers, right? This guy's been playing against men. You know he's honed his game, and I think that that is showing up now. That he has advanced way beyond his years from that standpoint. He loves the big stage. You know we we know that he will love playing in the Western Conference Finals, and if they get past that, he will be ready to play in the finals. There is no choke in him now there may be times he doesn't play well uh and and certainly that we've seen that and we see when that can happen with that but i i i think that he clearly is is going to be ready to rise to this challenge all right i'm gonna first of all i'm gonna say that both you guys are very close to being in violation of shot uh, or <laughs> shot clock violations there. okay all right you gotta we'll, move we'll, the ball a little bit quicker but we'll trim it but i will say this that you know the one the one thing about guys who are not afraid of the moment is that also means they have to be not afraid to fail. And we've seen that, that that's important. You Sometimes you have to fail and people have to recognize that you're going to fail in the moment, but more often than not, you're going to succeed in that moment. For me, the more important question now is we all know Luke is a great player and we knew that Luca could potentially win a series by himself. What did that series win say about the rest of the maps? Kevin? Uh, well, I, I want to say this in that game uh, as, as great as Luca was, uh, you know, he gets 35 points in 30 minutes. He's very efficient. You know, it, it was really in most of the series, he'd been more of a volume shooter. And, and I, and I think that's a little bit more of what he is, uh, is a volume uh, scorer, but, uh, he was very efficient. Look, that team played unbelievable defense in that game. They, they, they held Phoenix to 27 points in the first half. That was four points off the playoff record, which was also set by Phoenix when they scored 23 in 2000. So uh, they they completely ran Phoenix out of what uh, it wanted to do in that game. DeAndre Ayton was a non-factor. Uh, you know, Devin Booker was a non-factor. Neither Devin Booker nor Chris Paul scored a field goal in the first half. They went the, the entire first half without a field goal. That's just unbelievable that they could do that. So, you know, they've been doing this. They've been playing great defense. Now, well, they they played good defense during the season. We talked about that earlier, you know, that they they played, were playing pretty well, and then it kind of backed off, and they weren't quite as effective, and they ended up the year, what, seventh in the NBA in defensive rating. I don't know what they are right now in the playoffs. I haven't checked to see what their defensive rating is in the playoffs, but I would say after that performance, they have to be number one. Uh, this is a this is a team playing at a very high level, and they're going to need that uh, if they're going to advance past Golden State. I agree completely. But if you had that, and, and there's this period in the first quarter where I think, well, Dallas is thoroughly outplaying them, but they're only up by six to eight points. This is a dangerous proposition. Spencer Dinwiddie, if they had not had an offensive response from Dinwiddie early. I think then you, because if you don't, you expend so much energy defensively in an NBA game, if you don't see that on the other side pretty quickly, it kind of impacts the energy and the intensity and the performance. And you see that effort wasted too often. And I think we've seen that in past Mavericks teams. What Dinwiddie did uh, was spectacular. And then what happened, you had Brunson come in on top of that in the second half. And so just there, you know, 
uh, and I know we're going to talk about this series going up, uh, coming up. And, uh, you know, Steve Kerr, I thought, brought up an interesting thing when he was talking about the Mavericks, about how they really are like those Houston teams with James Harden, where it's kind of like a fan five, you know, where, where you know, Luca or Harden has the ball and the other guys fan around. But with Dinwiddie and Brunson, you can break down that defense and then just get wide open looks for guys on the perimeter because no one is going to stay out there on them. So uh, they are really constructed well, very quickly. And this was huge for Dinwiddie. You know, you started to see signs of offensive life from him uh, in the second half of game six, but he had not had an impact in this postseason run. In fact, actually in the series, I thought Bertans had done a better job, uh, you know, when you go back to, you know, those games here in Dallas. So Dinwiddie catching, hitting his offensive stride going into this Golden State series, I think is significant. Yeah, you know, I, I, just real quickly, I, I asked in Winnie that question. That's a travel. That's a travel. No, no, no. Many steps. Well, whoa, whoa, wait. No, no, many just steps. really quick. I just had to say that I asked in Winnie that question because I thought exactly the same thing. I thought you're wasting this defensive performance because Luca was the only one effective on offense in the first quarter. The only one. Uh, and then when Dinwiddie came in and, and the, the rest of the offense started to pick up at that point, and I, I agree 100%. Two things I would say this. Dinwiddie's played well for the Mavericks since they got him. I know there's been some ups and downs, but you get a Game 7 performance like that out of a player that you traded for, that wins a trade alone right there. Secondly, I would say that the second quarter of that game was as good a quarter of a Game 7 that any team has played in an NBA playoff game, 30-10 to 10 margin in that, in that game. All right, guys, very quickly, we've talked about other guys. Back to Luka. How does Golden State stop him, David? Well, it's not about it's you're not stopping him, but you're trying to make him as inefficient as possible. Right. Uh, it, you hear about people slowing down, but it's about making him inefficient. Uh, he's still going to wind up around his 30 to 35 points, but you want it with 28 shots. Right. And so, um, you know, to, to me, you're going to throw different bodies at him. Wiggins is going to be on him some um, early. Uh, Draymond Green will certainly be on him. Uh, but you throw different bodies on them. And to me, it's always interesting who's going to be on them in the fourth quarter. And I would think it would be Draymond, but we'll see how that plays out. Kevin? Yeah, I think that that, that would probably be a lot of Draymond, especially if, if uh, he's going to try to post up and go down. Obviously, that's going to be uh, Draymond working on him. And that's going to be a real issue because, you know, Luca just bullied everybody else. I mean, how how crazy was it to see Chris Paul trying to guard Luca? Uh, you know, and that happened many times. You know, they didn't have anybody that they could put up against him. Uh, it, there was no one they that the Suns put up against Luca who stopped him when Luca wanted to go to the basket. Yeah, and he's not going to bully Draymond now. But does he get Draymond in foul trouble? Which is well, some, certainly something you follow. And that's that be this will be all part of the chess match, right? Uh, of what they decide to do and how they approach, and then it will change as the series goes along. But I, I do think that. Uh, that Luca, listen, I have kind of uh, argued this point about Luca trying to get his entire team going in the first quarter because then that gets them all involved. They play better defense. It's just better for the team in general when he's able to do that. That's not what he did in, uh, in Game Seven. He he comes out and, and as uh, Dinwiddie said, he throws the knockout punch, and that's what he likes to do. So I, I certainly see the value in that as well. Uh, I see it more in a game seven than I do early in a series when you've got games to play here. You're trying to set a tone for your entire team across a series. So I do think it's important that he 
does what he was able to do uh, in the last series is is get his, his teammates involved. Yeah, different approaches for different moments. Yeah. Well, again, we're going to work on that. <laughs> um, that was ball movement. Come on. But I, I, I think you may have both answered this with your with your last answers, but we know what the national narrative will be throughout the series. We know what the national perspective will be. Luca versus Steph. Luca versus Steph. That's what it's, it's going to be back and forth. They're the two most dominant personalities and scorers in this series. Is there another player who will potentially show up and change the course of the series? And Kevin, I'm going to go to you first because you've hinted over and over again about the number of times that Draymond didn't play in the, in the series between the two teams. And you mentioned Draymond's defense here. Is, is, is he the guy or is there another guy on either team who could really make the difference here? Well, I mean, Draymond makes the the Suns go. I mean, Steve Kerr says that over and over again. It's 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 not Steph Curry. Steph Curry is a great scorer, but he's pretty much out there floating around the perimeter. Draymond Green is the guy. He's their their point guard playing in in, in the paint. So uh, he he's the guy that makes everything happen with him. I I, I expect him to play very well. There's nothing that's going the Mavericks going to be able to do about that. And I expect uh um. Uh, you know Steph Curry to, to to shoot well. You know, to me, Clay Thompson is the uh, is the X factor in this series for me for the from the uh, uh, for the Warriors standpoint because you know they didn't the Mavericks didn't face him during the regular season, uh, and so that gives them another score. It's another guy you got to con- contend with. I think in the last two series, you know, against both the Jazz and the Suns. Uh, the, the Mavericks were able to take guys out of the, the equation. The one upside is that there's not a center they have to worry about this time as a scorer. Uh, so that that's not going to be an issue for them. And, and, and that's going to be and also going to be very good for them on offense. They're going to be able to do more uh, and, and, and uh, explore the paint even more so than they did in this series. So I think that makes it very even. You know, there's a, there's a trade-off there. The, the, the Warriors are, are much more like the Mavericks, a five-out team playing around the perimeter, shooting threes. That, that's, that's good. It's going to be very wide open games from that standpoint. Uh, they don't have to worry about as much on the inside. David? To, to me, Poole is going to be a very interesting to, – to me, I, I think it's going to be Poole and Dinwiddie. To, to me, those are the two X factors because I think there are going to be games where those guys are dominant, and when they are, those teams are going to win. And when they're not, it's going to be a much different sledding. Um, and I say that because I, I think Brunson's going to be there. I, I think he's kind of he's kind of earned the two A designation, if you will, um, the, as this postseason has unfolded. So uh, you go after that, and, and to me, it's and you know. Clay's the same thing. He's going to have some big games and other games. He's just not going to give you that much. But you have Wiggins there, and that's why I say Poole. So Poole and Dinwiddie, I think, is going to be, uh, if you're gauging the temperature game to game, uh, I say look at the temperature of those two guys. All right, last question, and we get out of here. I think we all know what the national narrative will be if the Mavs win, right? Luca's team, Luca's ascension, Luca, you know, Luca's elevated himself to top three players in the league if he wasn't already there. Let's take the other scenario. If this team loses this series, what becomes a narrative on this Mavs team and where they are and where they go? Kevin, we'll go age before beauty. 
Oh, I like that. Uh, look, the, the, first of all, the Mavericks getting to the Western Conference Finals is a huge plus for this team. As David said, and he's made this point before, teams, great teams usually are great before you're ready for them. Uh, I think they've proven that. I think there's a lot of things they can do to improve on this team that are, are doable. For the first time I see going into an offseason, the possibility that, you know, you go out and, 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 and get a Bobby Portis, and that and I think that that really ups your game here to, to – so sub him out for Dwight Powell, uh, who's given you essentially nothing as a, as a starting center, uh, certainly from from a points rebound standpoint. So I, I think that this is uh, that they can if they can at least uh, whether they get to the finals or not, if they can get this to six games, then this has been a huge plus. It's already a plus. It'd be a huge plus if they if they extend them that far. If they lose, it will be. Hey, this is this is. We're seeing the changing of the guard. Uh, no shame in losing to a team with championship experience and who they have here. You know, you can't dismiss that championship experience. Uh, they're still ahead of schedule. And, and to me, this is the first time in, what, 10 years that you don't go into an offseason saying, oh, my gosh, th- this team is desperately missing a piece. You, you know, they've got to go do this. they got to do that. they got to reshuffle. Now maybe it's just should they just re-sign Brunson, and now you're looking at at adding an ancillary piece, and you take this back because you've seen enough. And oh, remember you're getting Hardaway back. Isn't Hardaway in addition to this? So why not keep this team together with what you have? Get Hardaway back, give it another year, and see where you're going. Every other offseason has been chasing. Uh, an elusive player that would be a good fit that could bring you forward. To me, that's that's not the focus this offseason anymore because of what they've done. No, I think I, I, David, I think your your last summation and what and playing off of what Kevin said that it's reasonable to think that what the Mavs could do this offseason is practical and could put them at the championship level one way or another. You know, I I think that both of you guys kind of hit on this. In the past, they've dreamed big and they've chased big and they've come up empty. Um, I think now you can look at this team and say, okay, you can put some realistic pieces together and finish out a championship roster. Um, and with that said, I'm going to call it a draw. I think you guys both did a great job. I'm giving you a Oh, you know, that was nice. I'm not going to pick a, a winner out. here because we're all winners. I believe in participation. Oh, God. Participation um, trophies right. all around. We, we, for everybody. And really, there was only one loser on Sunday, and that was the Stars. And with that, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to do our – on that segue. But, he did. He worked D- during our prolonged answers, he was there riding away on the Segway to get us into the next segment. Yeah, let's go. This goes into our potpourri segment, <clears throat> which is going to be led by the Stars. Uh, they also played in a, a, a game seven on Sunday, and they played very well. Uh, and and uh, or at least Jake Ottinger played very well, and we've seen that throughout this series. Jake Ottinger became a national story. Uh, for his play and goal, uh, the 23-year-old goalie that they developed themselves. And we, we talked a little bit about that in some previous podcasts about how well he has played this year and how the, how the Stars have discovered something there that they have really never done since they've been here. They've always gone out and, and either found themselves a goalie or even when they developed Marty Turco, he was 27 years old uh, when he uh, became the, the starter. Uh, Ottinger is just 23 
And I would say at this point, he looks like a superior goalie at that. Uh, so now it's on the stars going forward uh, to do something about that. And you don't ever see any sport where they're more quick trigger than they are in hockey. They fire coaches uh, between periods sometimes. You know, they make they make big trades constantly. Tom Gillardi is not a particularly patient owner. He's a guy who wants to win. He's going to see that look how well we played. Look how well this goalie played. And we did not back him up. We did not give him enough scoring punch here. He was at, and for that matter, the defense didn't play that well. He's he's stopping 50 shots in these games. It's unbelievable. So it, there really was not much of a, of a punch behind him. Uh, the Stars have some some real talent. This is a this is a, a roster that has some really talented players on it. I do believe it's time for them to move on and bring in a new coach. Uh, Rick Bonus is a, a you know defense first and last kind of guy. I think it's time for the uh, uh, Stars to move on, find a guy that's going to be a little more offensive oriented, somebody who can snap this got this offense into shape. Well, I would, and, and, I would, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Evan. I, the one thing I would just say is I, I think the way you summed it up, Kevin, I mean, it, it, it comes down to this. If you want a rationalization, if you're Galliardi and you want a, you want a rationalization, you can't waste goalie play like that in a, in a playoff series, right? Um, you've had dominant goalie play. Uh, I think when we, if I, when I was watching the game the other, when I was watching game seven and they flashed up a list that had him, uh, had Ottinger sandwiched between Ken Dryden and Jacques Plant on, uh, saves in a seven-game series, um, that's a good place to be for a goalie. And if you don't win that series, um, you, you've wasted it. And so if you're looking for rationalization to make a change, I, I think it certainly exists there. Uh, if a change is needed, don't know. But in hockey, it's, it is always, as you say, you know, hey, nothing else is working. Let's make a change. And how similar is what Ottinger did to what Luca did with the Mavericks against the Clippers in the playoffs in a game seven a few years ago. Uh, you know, Luca had that huge game and they lost in a game seven. Ottinger's done the same way, but you leave that pretty optimistic going. We have someone to build around going forward. Now it's incumbent on us. That's, that's the hard part. It's, it should be easier to put a team around them. And, and you're right. For, from a hockey standpoint, now you look at, well, do we want to win all these games? Two, one, three, two, or do we open this up a little bit because we have arguably, if not the best, certainly one of the best goalies in the NHL. So it gives you the latitude to build the team differently. And you would think you would be a little more high powered team going forward when you have that good of a goalie versus a, okay, let's, let's just constrict the game, keep it close and try to win close games. No, you don't do that anymore. Now now you can play a little more wide open, which is also a more fan-friendly style, right? Yeah, it is. I would say just one last thing here about the stars and all this segment here is that, you know, we've, saw, we've seen over the last couple of years a lot of complaints from ownership and from management about Jamie Benn and Tyler Sagan right? Uh, it's time for these guys to score some goals. You, you don't ever see that in any other sport or, or even in the, in the NHL with, with people calling out in management, calling out their own players. Uh, I, I think it's certainly possible. Both of these guys are older and, and getting to the end of their run. And that's, that's part of the problem, but isn't it part of the problem? Maybe the system, you know, uh, if, if now you've had other players who haven't looked as good as well, I mean, uh, Merrill Heskin hadn't looked as, as great at times. John Klingberg hasn't looked as great at times. These were guys who were all considered potential stars. 
Uh, and, and, and I don't, I don't mean, I mean, stars of the little S, not the big S. Uh, so these are, these are questions that they're going to have to ask that are going to have to answer here pretty soon. And I expect that the Jim Neal, the GM will do that. And I do expect he probably will move on because I think that the owner is going to force the issue. So that's well, going to be his contract is up and he's 67. Right. And, and like yeah. you say, hockey's inclined to move on pretty quickly with coaches. Anyway, uh, a 67 year old, basically career assistant who took over on an interim basis uh, and you kept going a year after because you got to, uh, you know, the Stanley Cup final unexpectedly. Um, He's done a very good job here, but is that how they want to be built going forward? And do you want to tie into him? Uh, There are a lot of things that work there. I think that work against Rick Bonus and it's more situational versus the job he's actually done. Absolutely. All right. So then our next in our potpourri segment, uh, we want to talk about the Nelson that just came off. Uh, you know, this year I didn't go out there one time because of all this uh, uh, stars uh, uh, stuff going on. Uh, Mavericks, Mavericks, Kevin, Mavericks, Mavericks stuff. Well, stars too. Our stars are Mavericks, but I didn't. I didn't do anything on the stars, but I, <laughs> but but that was that's okay. Thank uh, you for that admission. Yes, absolutely. So, so the so the last week he had, the, you know, this is the second year it's been played out at Craig Ranch. Uh, you know, I don't know how I feel about uh, the tournament being played in McKinney at Craig Ranch. You know, it's 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 Tim called it. It's a birdie fest. Uh, you know, scores were just plunging in the first day. On it's kind of hard to get a true measure of these golfers when when everybody is shooting. You know, uh, six, seven. Eight. I mean, guys are shooting sixty ones out there. You know. And it's, it's my understanding, I, after talking to my official golf source, Chuck Cooperstein, that they're planning on making some changes out there uh, at uh, that might even make it into a par 70 course, uh, which would, you know, I, I, that's just never a good idea to me. Unless you're an historic course, you can't be a par 70. So anyway, we'll see. Chuck didn't have any opinions. I bet he just was. <laughs> no. Chuck's a very unopinionated guy. He's very knowledgeable about all this, all this stuff, the sports authority. Um, but let's talk about the players. Uh, so Jordan Spieth finishes second, one stroke back of KH Lee. You know, really uh, unfortunate what happened to him on the 10th hole. He comes in. He's on a, uh, he's on a birdie run. Uh, he's, he's putting for a birdie on 10 from six feet. Runs it past. Comes back, you know, and what comes to my mind is what his wife had told him uh, is that, you know, when these things happen to you, take five seconds, you know, take five seconds and back off. And he doesn't do that, you know, and he runs it and he runs his uh, par putt pass and has to settle for bogey. That's really a, a two stroke, you know, Debbie tells me you don't listen to her either, Kevin. Well, if she had good advice like like uh, Jordan's wife had, then I would. I mean, holy cow, he won a tournament because of her. You know, she hasn't wins. told you to step away and take a deep breath and <laughs> no. don't come back. Step away no. from the lead, Kevin. Step away yeah. from the lead. Step away. Yeah, well, I never let Debbie look at my, my laptop, I can tell you that. Um, well, that's but, another issue that maybe yeah. we should explore yeah, here. Well, it's no. on your laptop. No, let's not do that. Uh, but anyway, you know, this is classic Jordan, though. You know, he's been playing much better the last couple of years. There's no question about that, and we're glad to see that. Uh, but he is, much like Phil Mickelson, a guy who who not only can get himself out of trouble, he can get in it, uh, and we're going to use a little less proof of that, I think, going forward. Let's, you know, he he called it playing boring golf, and he got himself into a position 
to win the, his first Nelson, which is something he's always wanted to do. And, and he came up just short. But I will say this. It put him in great shape going into the PGA this week. Uh, he's playing very well. Uh, the Texas guy, Will Zalatoris, uh, didn't make the cut at the Nelson, but Scotty Scheffler did. He's playing well, too, the number one golfer in the world. It's a, it's a great time for, for Texas golf and to see these guys rise like they have. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to see where they go with their careers. This looks like another Hogan-Nelson kind of thing to me, if they can just pull this off and if Jordan can quit getting in so much trouble and and uh, and playing the kind of golf that uh, shot him to superstardom. Well, and the thing is, coming out too, he, he was talking coming out of the tournament about how much better his putting stroke is, which – Again, which was a big part of his fall, right? He was outstanding on the greens, and then uh, he lost it, and he's had to work his way back ever since the the, the Masters collapse and uh, what he dealt with, you know, in the, in the ensuing year and a half after that. Um, but still, he loses a tournament because of a three putt from six feet. And how often do not even elite pro, just any pro pro golfer does that. You you just don't see that. So even while he's saying his stroke is better, that's what he's saying. But when you lost a tournament, clearly because you three putted from six feet <laughs> when you had a chance to win it, isn't that in your head? So that's the other thing about scrambling. Yeah, you get yourself out of trouble, but you can also throw yourself in trouble at, at the most inopportune time too. And, and you know what the consequences are. Now, now I will say, People will say, well, this is ridiculous. The guy shot 25 under and didn't win the tournament. Uh, I, I get that. But this is what happened on the back nine in a tournament that was yours to win. This wasn't a three putt on round one or round two. This was in the final nine holes when you knew you had a chance to win. And that plays with a golfer's mentality differently than if this would have happened in the first two or even three days of the tournament. Yeah, that was a tournament right there at 10. No question about that. I, I hope that Jordan is able to put that aside. That has one been one of his hallmarks when he was playing really well. Make a mistake, put it aside, move on. Here we go. I, I think that it, the mistakes rolled up on him a little bit there and when he had that drought. But we'll, we'll see where he goes going forward. All right, uh, let, let's talk about uh, those Cowboys. In an interview with uh, Peter King, Jerry Jones said that uh, as, as Peter – pressed him about, you know, the fact that, the, what, the Cowboys are worth $6.5 billion, according to Forbes, something like that. Jerry said, I could get $10 billion if I want to sell it. And let me tell you this. I've always thought when I read these things about uh, Forbes evaluations of these uh, franchises, it's, it's, it's a little ridiculous because, because there, are, there are so few of them to begin with. They're worth more than what Forbes said they are. You know, my wife's in real estate. This is a crazy market uh, for realtors. And people will say – Oh, this house is worth, you know, $650,000. Right now in this market, if it, it says the house is $650,000, you're not getting it for $650,000. You're going to pay seven, seven fifty, or seven eighty for that house now. That's just the way that it is. And it's, it's the same way always in these franchises. There, there are so few of them that if you want one, it's going to cost you a lot of money. And, and frankly, anything is worth what somebody's willing to pay for it. That's, that's what it's worth. And aren't these franchises now in a, the whole the former Enron thing too big to fail? Isn't an NFL franchise too big to fail now? I mean, you're you're insulated from some of the market forces that drag down the the value of what you're putting into it. it it's only going to go up and, and dramatically go up. So, yeah, the, you know, 
these are what these franchises are evaluated at now. But after Denver sells and, and after, you know, one or two other franchises, it's going to go up e- even higher. But, yeah, th- those evaluations are behind what you could actually get on the open market. No question. I, I just find I, 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 it's typical, Jerry, to me. First of all, I, I, I get the valuation principle and, and all of that. And, yeah, every time I bring up a valuation to an owner and obviously my, you know, my, my background has been with baseball. Um, the owners of the, the Rangers, whoever they may be at that particular point in time, will, oh, you know, that's that, that, that's not accurate information. That's not accurate information. Um, but Jerry's not going to sell the Cowboys, you know? He, he's not. The family's not going to sell the Cowboys. So it doesn't matter what Forbes values the Cowboys at. He's not going to sell them. So it, it, it's all just a hypothetic of, well, you know, if you would, what, what's it worth? Well, he's not going to sell them. You know, somebody want to come to him with twenty billion? Okay, well then let's see. But he, he's just not going to sell the team, and so I, I, I just find the whole discussion a little bit, you know, a, a little bit silly on on that front. Well, I will say this though: what's amazing is, is you go back to and this, and Peter did in this interview with Jerry. Uh, he paid one hundred fifty million dollars for for the Cowboys in nineteen eighty nine. That was for the the franchise and the lease at Texas Stadium. Uh, I can remember asking Tom Hicks one time in a conversation, uh, and he said that well, uh, 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 someone came to him and asked him his interest. I guess because they they couldn't find anybody any takers. Uh, that, and that's the crazy thing about this. This is nineteen eighty nine. It's not uh, in our lifetimes. It's not that long ago, uh, and. And they said, uh, uh, "What do you think?" And Tom said, "I kicked some tires on. I just I couldn't see the, making it work." And, and, and maybe that says something about Tom Hicks, but it it also says a lot about Jerry Jones. And then he realized, uh, and it wasn't just Tom Hicks. Lamar Hunt said the same thing. This is going to be a very difficult thing to turn around here. It's like you're crazy, you know. Jerry Jones realized it's Dallas Cowboys. It's a brand, man. Even then, it was a brand. Uh, and he understood that. And, and I, we have to give Jerry all the credit in the world for seeing that. But I, I think the, that's the difference between a generation of owners, right? That well, it's, it's, Jerry it's, was on the forefront yeah. of that ownership well, group of ownership it, it, groups that understood brand value and marketing of brands. And, well, and Jerry forced the TV issue. And there's and Jerry understood that better, you know, and that was the thing that made you know, football bigger than baseball back in the 60s was TV. Pete Rozelle understood TV and what and the and the value it brought to it because football is the ultimate TV sport. And because of that and the, the things we were talking about a while ago, all these things that buttress as David said, any types of there, there, there will be no losses now. You, everybody's going to make money now because of the stadiums, because of the luxury suites, because of the, everything that goes into all of that, because of the TV. It's just a money-making machine. You know that's why they're, they're going to cost so much to, if they're going to have any expansion. It, what, what's what's it cost now, David, to get in a, a billion dollars? What's it cost? Oh yeah, it's, it's beyond that. And again, you haven't had any legitimate expansion talk in a while, so. Um, uh, and, and what, are you going to do that internationally or here? So, yeah, the, the, the next level of buy-in is g- just going to be astronomical. Absolutely. All right, that's going to do it for our potpourri. We're going to close it out with the Rangers, uh, who are just still all over the map. Uh, they, they, they played really well, uh, and then they game, ran into the Red Sox and lost two or three in that series, and the pitching fell apart. Uh, uh, but we have seen some, uh, some strides being made here. Certainly, Martin Perez continues to pitch very well uh, for the Rangers. Been a tremendous pickup to bring him back. Uh, just p- 
pitching remarkably well. Uh, and Evan, I want, I want to just start with that because I want to ask you this. This was something I was contemplating writing at some point. Is Martin Perez now uh, at what? How old is Martin? 30, 31? 31. Has he hit 31 what the Rangers always thought he was going to be when he was 18? Listen, we've, we've seen Martin Perez have some nice runs before, um, particularly early in the season. So I'm not sure if this is a different Martin Perez or if this is just one of those nice stretches. And and I wrote about that after Philadelphia. He, he, he did that, uh, I think, in 2014, right before the Tommy John I- injury. Um, he did it with Minnesota after he discovered the cutter. Uh, the question is always going to be, Will how will Martin adjust once hitters make an adjustment back to him? And and so that's still to be to be determined. And I think what Martin has done has been great. And four million dollars has been well spent, regardless of what happens the rest of the way, because he's kind of stabilized this rotation early in the season. But for me, especially over the last ten days, having been removed from the beat a little bit and having to kind of watch this club from a thirty thousand foot level. Martin's not one of the major developments to me on this team in this season because I still think this is about long-term answers. Martin's here on a one-year deal. Um, could he be re-signed to a one-year deal again next year when this team might be in a better position to contend? Sure. But the things that I'm looking at in terms of big developments this year are things like we've seen from Brock Burke and Joe Barlow at the back of the bullpen. Those are guys who might really fit in a championship bullpen when this team is a championship team. That's something that's really stood out. Burke has been a as, as big a surprise as anything this year. Um, the continued e- evolution of Eli White as a multi-tooled player um, who can help a team offensively, help a, uh, help a team defensively, help a team on the base pass. This is why Willie Calhoun is not in the big leagues. He, Willie has one tool, and that's to hit, and he's not hitting. Eli can help you win a game even when he's not hitting, and right now he is hitting. And then the third thing for me, and probably the biggest surprise offensively on the on the plus side, has been, um, and, and this is something I intend to a- ask about significantly today, is all right, what was the adjustment that they made with Jonah Heim, particularly against left-handed pitching? Because this guy has been a not just a, a threat, this guy has been dominant against left-handed pitching for a month and a half now to the point where he's got – not just got home runs and not just got some power, six walks, one strikeout against left-handed pitching. He's not missing pitches when left-handers are throwing. So that's a that those are all for me big kind of uh, or significant pieces that you're starting to find answers to that fit in the long haul. And that's where I think management is still looking. They're looking for improvement this year. But the answers that they have to find from players are about how they fit in the championship arc. I, I agree with you 100% on Heim. I was watching the game last night, and I was thinking about that, about how it's funny how they went out and got Mitch Garver because they wanted to give some more punch to their uh, uh, catching position. And Garver's, you know, he's, he's been hurt. He's kind of been who he's always been, right? Uh, and he, when he's there, he's been he's been pretty good at times. Uh, and Heim has been excellent uh, this year, far above what you would think. He, I think his his OPS is like, what, second among catchers in baseball right now. So he, he's done very well. I, I agree with you on a lot of that, but I'm telling you, you're underselling on Martin here. He's 31 years old. Uh, let This is the classic story about left-handers, developing late, 
and pitching late into their career. I could, I could see Martin pitching for another six or seven years and being very effective at this I'm point. Not, I'm not disputing any of that, Kevin. All I'm saying is he's here on a one-year contract right now, and if this team's not winning, he's as valuable as a trade piece this year as he is you know, keeping him around. Um, and if you do choose to re-sign him next year and he's pitched really well, it's going to cost you much closer to market to, to real market value for him. So uh, does he fit? Yeah, he could fit. I just don't know that I'm, I'm, I'm saying that I can't, I'm, I'm counting on him as a long-term part of the core. Yeah, I, I understand that because, you know, he's been a disappointment. There's no question in his career. I mean, Martin Perez was their number one prospect for many years. And I can remember conversations with Nolan Ryan about that and, and where he always said, I don't see it, you know, because uh, he – I think Nolan didn't like him because he didn't throw hard. Uh, and, and so like that was a big issue for him uh, as, as far as being a number one prospect. I just feel like that he has done such a good job this year. Uh, it, it's funny that uh, Odolis Garcia, uh, when he hit the home run, he made a big point saying, I'm going to win this. I think he's very close to Martin. Uh, and I, and I wondering if, if, if there's a little bit of that, a, a little bit of a feeling like, look, you know, cause, because Odolis is no kid either, uh, even though he, he just came up last year as a rookie, uh, a, a feeling like we need to stick together. We can we can make something happen here. And and I, I would like to, to know a little bit about that dynamic as it moves forward. Well, I, I mean, I, listen, I think Martin has grown up. I think there is some um, – uh, there's some there's some more worldliness to him. I've always thought it a little bit unfair that he was labeled too emotionally immature on the mound. I thought there was a little bit – there was a little bit of undertones of okay, this is the young, a hot, you know, hot-tempered Latin pitcher that unfairly got got labeled too many guys at, at, at two points, too many points of time. But I do think there's been some maturity, and I just do watch his body language a little bit. It just seems to be like he's enjoying the moment, and I I think I don't want to dis- diminish what I'm saying that he's been an unadulterated success to this point this year. There's there's been there's been nothing but good things about Martin Perez. I'm just still looking. All of my view is okay. When this team is good, is he going to be a part of it? And I'm not. I, I don't have the answer there. But yeah, I think he's he's fine with what his role is now, which is to go out and pitch and be a professional and go back to where we were at the very beginning of the show uh, when we were talking about Luka Doncic and we were talking about not being afraid of the moment. Adolis Garcia will fail in the moment and will fail often in the moment, but he also has a knack for coming up at big moments in games and succeeding. He is, he, to me, he's the quintessential guy who's not afraid of the moment. He knows, I'm not afraid. I know I may fail here, but I'm also not afraid to take that challenge. And when I do, when I am successful, I'm going to celebrate it. And that's what they did. The, that's what he did the other day. You know, it's funny. They spent $500 million on their in, in middle infield, and I'm sure that every fan's favorite player on that team is Elvis Garcia. Sure. Fans love emotional players, you know, and they love energetic players. And I've, I've had fans this week, you know, because I, I was kind of incapacitated and I spent a little bit more time on, on Twitter listening to people. And I had people talk about how Simeon's body language is that he doesn't care and this and that. And that's all bull. Marcus Simeon sure. cares. He's a professional. Corey Seager cares. He's a professional. What fans like is the heart punching, you know, the, the heart pounding. They love the energy. They love the way Adoli smiles. They love that stuff. And that's necessary for certain guys on, on teams. 
that works for Dolis. It doesn't work for certain other guys. So, how about what Cole Calhoun said about him? I thought that was remarkable for a guy who played with Mike Trout. And and you know I like Cole Calhoun. He's a he's a nice guy. He's a he's a veteran. He's been around. He's played on some good teams. He's been a good player himself. Uh, he he called him a superstar. He he said this is a guy that uh, can carry a team. Uh, he says not. He said I I, I want to. Uh, he said he's one of the best players I've ever played with. You know, these are remarkable things to say uh, about a guy who's what's what's it always hitting right now? Two hundred. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, you know, but we, we've seen this with him. And, and of course, there's been a, a, a tendency to dismiss Adolis last year. I thought last year was a travesty he didn't get rookie of the year. I, I, you know, I, I know we can talk about the fall off of the second part of the year. But I thought when you when you watch him play every day and you watch what he does on defense, you watch what he does on offense, uh, the way that, as you said, he comes up big late in games and clutch situations – uh, this guy is is a gamer. It's just hard not to pull for him. Yeah, the, the fall off last year was just so dramatic in the second half, and you know there was just so much hype about Wander Franco. I was a little bit disappointed that Franco won with as little amount of time as he spent on the active roster as he did, but that's that's another story. The bottom line on Adolis Garcia is this is an energetic player. He fits. He's a guy who maybe did take a little bit longer to um, – uh, find his way in, in Major League Baseball. I think as this lineup continues to kind of sort through things and guys find their level and get back, if Adolis is hitting fifth or sixth, that's where he can mo- be most effective. You know, I do think there are times when he's put in the three spot or the four spot where he does say, okay, I've got to take the team on my shoulders, and he does try to do too much in those situations. Um, uh, and... He's capable of carrying the team when he just is free, as opposed to when he says, I've got to carry the team. You know, I think that becomes a heavy burden for people. I think so. That's why I have that burden myself, carrying the uh, sports section. Holy uh, cow. Here we go. <laughs> the Adonis uh, Garcia of Sports Day. That's what I'm going to start calling myself. Without the I'm, energy or excitement, but sure. Go, yeah, exactly. go ahead and call yourself that. It's true. Without the, the charisma. I'm the 200 hitter. That's what I am. Is that <laughs> certainly that? All right, that's going to do it for our podcast this week. It was a big weekend, and boy, we covered it. Uh, and so, when we come back next week, we'll have a lot better uh, picture of where the Mavericks are in this series against the Warriors. So make sure that you tune back in with us next week as well. And we will be up and going, and all of us being our own Adolis Garcia in our own special way. That's going to do it. See you.